This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's a passenger in here, just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to the stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have to plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast all about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who lived, worked, played here. I am Sky. You'll notice today things are a little bit different. Unfortunately, Anthony could not join us. We are joined, as usual, when Anthony is not here, by Sam. Hi, Sam. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Sky? I am doing good. And then we are also joined by not as frequent special guests, but special guests nonetheless, Charlie. How are you, Charlie? I'm good. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Step in for Anthony. Well, how are you guys doing? We are just wrapping up the October season here. We had a great October, a lot of fun events, a lot of people, almost all of them got sold out. Thank you to our faithful listeners and our faithful visitors to the site. I unfortunately have not been out for an event in a hot minute, but they're always fun. You guys do a great job out there. Next event, definitely if you haven't had a chance to make it out to the Penitentiary, Century, highly recommend it. But yeah, anything else new going on in your guys' lives? How's the how's the fall? It's nice. It's really starting to get crisp in the mornings out here. There's crunchy Ooh. leaves, so it's it's good. A lot of pretty colors. Oh, what about you, Sky? How's the fall been there? Do you know what? It actually has been good. Good. Uh. I know. My first three years here, it did not drop below 80 until after Halloween. But I don't know what happened this year. The weather gods are smiling on me and my room he's from New Hampshire and so we miss the fall so much and so it actually has dropped into the 70s and it looks like it's going to stay there for the foreseeable future which is so thrilling for us so yes very excited about fall good I'm glad to hear there's nothing cozier than getting ready for winter having the temperatures drop sitting with a nice fire watching the leaves fall Oh, cozy. Well, Sky, I hear you have a pretty amazing story today. Do you, do you want to get us started off? Um, I will start it off. Whether it's pretty amazing remains to be seen. Hopefully it's it's interesting at the very least. So today I'm talking about number 10351, Donna Mae Peterson. So my sources today are her inmate file, of course, from the Idaho State Archives, newspapers.com records, ancestry.com records, Parma, Idaho virtual travel from untraveledroad.com, an article by a uh, Zachary A. Sanchez, titled Fort Boise's History Transitions on IntermountainHistories.org, a history of Fort Boise on FortBoiseGarrisonCavalry.com, HouseOfHopeUT.org, and then just quick Wikipedia mentions of the Oregon Trail and Edgar Rice Burroughs. Donna Mae Peterson was born Donna Mae Grubb to Don M. Grubb and Madge S. Siler Grubb in Salt Lake City, Utah on July 6, 1933. When Donna was around a year old, her parents separated and Don left the family. Soon after her parents' separation, her mother remarried a man named Louis Henry Sandberg, and he became Donna's stepfather. And because Louis was around for nearly all of her life, Donna really considered him her father more than Don, her biological father. And she grew up using the last name Sandberg while she was while she was raised, and, and really took that on in her adulthood rather than Grubb. So in 1940, Donna was living with her mother, her stepfather, and her maternal aunt Ruth in Ely, Nevada, where the family lived, uh, where the family had lived for about five years. Around 1940, Donna's younger half-brother William was born, and this is her only sibling, but they had a good relationship as they grew up together. When she was 11 or 12, she went to Salt Lake City with a maternal aunt, maybe her Aunt Ruth, but I'm not totally sure. And according to her own recollection, while she was in Salt Lake, her father, Don, came to get her. And so at this time, he lived with, quote, his brother, wife, and daughter, end quote. 
out. Uh, the wording of that is a little confusing. I don't know if that means that he lived with his brother, his wife, and his daughter, or if it was his brother, his brother's wife, and his brother's daughter. Couldn't really find records to verify either of those. But, you know, she's living with her biological father. She lived with him for about a year before returning to live with her mother. During this time, Madge and Lewis, her stepdad, were separated, so Donna lived with her mother for a time before, quote, her stepfather got her and she lived with him and his mother and brother in Ogden, Utah, end quote. After six months, Madge, her mother, comes to get her, and so from six, every six months from here on out, she would be transferred between Lewis and Madge. Uh, this is what in the old parent trap they call the six-month split, if there's anyone who's seen wonderful, wonderful olds, uh, <laughs> movie with Maureen O'Hara, who died in Boise, actually. So anyway, around the time she was 15 or 16, Donna May quit 10th grade at Central Junior High School in Ogden. She said she was pretty average in school. And as we see so often from girls in this era, she dropped out of school because she got married in August 1950 when she was 17 to a man named Alan Leo Poorman, who was 20 years old. Alan was a young man who had a troubled past. In 1948, while stationed at a Naval Air Technical Training Center near Memphis, Tennessee, he was arrested for grand larceny after breaking into a car and stealing $3,000 worth of jewelry. He also had a misdemeanor for taking mail from mailboxes in July 1949, and there was a morals charge against a 16-year-old Ogden girl in April 1950. So this morals charge probably refers to premarital sex. Remember, this is Utah in the 1950s. I think that there's more than a zero chance that the 16-year-old Ogden girl was Donna. Now, I don't want to say that I know that for sure. I think the reason I say that is because it, it's not a, like a step statutory charge, which seems to indicate that there is some sort of consent on both sides. On May 11th, 1950, these moral charges were dropped, and only two months later, he and Donna May married. So again, I can't say with 100% certainty that this charge that he was arrested with was with Donna, but things do seem to match up in this regard to it being her. Regardless, they get married, and on February 21st, 1951, their daughter, uh, Lana, was born. In Donna May's social history after her incarceration, the interview asked her what this first marriage was like, and she said, quote, she stated that they got along fairly well for two young kids during their marriage before he was sent to prison, and they were still congenial when she was sent here, end quote. So as I just alluded to, soon after the birth of their daughter, Alan was arrested with an accomplice for burglary for, quote, removing a 400-pound safe from the W.S. Butler Custom Trailers, end quote. He was put on probation for this charge, and on January 9th, 1952, he was arrested again for burglary after stealing $1,474 in cash and merchandise worth almost $1,200. Because he was on probation for his other burglary charge, he was given three second-degree burglary charges and sentenced to serve one to 20 years at the Utah State Penitentiary for each count, serving all sentences concurrently or at the same time. So due to his serving prison time, Donna separated from Allen. She filed for divorce in the state of Wyoming, as at that time she lived in Rock Springs, and she filed for that on December 18th, 1953, citing quote-unquote indignities. By the time she filed for divorce, she had moved to Wyoming. She'd been there for a few years and had actually been arrested on a board of health charge in 1952 under the name Shirley Collins, which is usually a charge for illegal sex work. And then she was also arrested more outrightly for sex work in 1953 in Rock Springs under the name Nina Manning. So she's clearly on hard times while in Wyoming. Her divorce was granted about two months after she filed on February 16th, 1954. And it seems likely that after her divorce, she returned to Ely, Nevada, which is where her parents lived. Then on November November 24th, 1956, she married a man named Floyd Kenneth Peterson, who was a vacuum salesman from Ely. And I just need to say that that is the most stereotypical job I've ever heard of, a vacuum salesman in the 1950s. You can't really get more, like, 1950s than that. Now, if you thought Alan Poorman had a troubled past, Floyd Peterson makes him look like child's play. According to a record of the Washington State Corrections Report that I found, his first crime occurred in 1930. And between that year and 1947, he served time in prison or jail in Los Angeles, Okanagan, Washington, 
the Federal Correctional Institute at Terminal Island in California, McNeil Island in Washington. He also served in Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. And his crimes varied from third-degree assault to violation of the Dyer Act, which is transporting stolen cars over state lines, to drunkenness. In 1953, he was arrested on a charge of possession of narcotics. And in February 1954, after all of this, he was given two years in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Has a bit of a rap sheet. Yes, he does have a bit of a rap sheet. And so, in 1956, he marries Donna, and after that, they live happily ever after. Just kidding, obviously. But actually, according to Donna May, they had a, quote, very good marital adjustment, end quote. So even with his troubled past, they seemed to get along very well. For some reason, in the late 1950s, they were in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And while there, Floyd was arrested for investigation on an unspecified charge, and the police department held Donna in jail overnight on a vagrancy charge. She was also arrested in Tacoma, Washington for vagrancy in 1957. Then, on April 22, 1958, the Idaho statesman reported that three people had been arrested in Caldwell with possession of narcotics and second-degree burglary after they robbed a drugstore in Parma, Idaho. Those three people were Herman Jones, Floyd Kenneth Peterson, and of course... Donna Mae Peterson. Pause here and we're going to do a little bit of Parma history. So we haven't done the history of Parma yet. There isn't really a lot available about Parma online so this history section might not be very long but I did want to give a shout out to Parma. So Parma is located in southwestern Idaho about five miles from the Oregon-Idaho border and about 40 miles northwest of Boise. It belongs to Canyon County. The history of Parma isn't fully clear. The area of course was traditionally inhabited by the Bannock and Northern Shoshone tribes. In 1834, close to present-day Parma, Thomas McKay of the Hudson Bay Fur Trading Company founded Fort Snake at the confluence of the Snake and Boise Rivers. This was eventually renamed Fort Boise. So this location is the location of the original Fort Boise, and it competed directly with Fort Hall in Pocatello, which is what Fort Hall, Idaho, and Fort Hall Reservation is named after. Soon after, in about the 1840s, the use of the Oregon Trail became widely publicized, and the Oregon Trail passed right through Parma, so thousands of people streamed through the area between the 1840s and the 1860s. Throughout that time, the economy of Fort Boise shifted from trading to salmon fisheries, since it was on the convergence of the two rivers. A big flood in 1853 and escalating conflicts between white settlers and indigenous tribes in 1854 led to its decline. It was finally abandoned in 1855, and the new Fort Boise was established in current-day Boise as a military post in 1863. I don't know when Parma as a city was officially founded or incorporated, but they did not appear on any official federal census records until 1910. One article I read said that it wasn't until irrigation systems were built in the first decade of the 20th century that population finally swelled in the area, so my best guess it was founded in like late 1890s into the early 1900s or so. It was named after Parma, Italy, but again I don't know why that is or who suggested that name, and that's kind of all I could find about Parma, but here is a really fun fact that I did not know. Edgar Rice Burroughs, who is the man who created Tarzan and wrote the Tarzan stories, worked as a city alderman in Parma while living there working on his family's gold dredges. He was born in Chicago, but he and his brothers were prominent ranchers in Pocatello, and all three of the Burroughs brothers were partners in the Sweetser Burroughs Mining Company in Idaho. I had no idea. Yeah, I had no idea that Edgar Rice Burroughs had a connection to Idaho, much less Parma, of all places. It was brief. He ended up moving back to Chicago. He doesn't claim a lot of Idaho ancestry, but it is well known that he worked and lived a little bit out there. That's Parma. Anyway, back to Donna May. So here's the story of the crime from Donna May's point of view. Around 6 or 7 p.m. on the evening of March 19th, 1954, the three of them entered a drugstore in Parma. Donna began looking around for products to purchase while Herman Jones snuck into the back of the store and began stealing narcotics. Perhaps spotting that two people came in, but suddenly there's just one person in the front, the pharmacist understandably got suspicious and found Jones in the back. So the Jones and the pharmacist fought, and the police arrived to arrest Donna May and Herman. And after the three of them, and I'm not sure where Floyd was in all of this, I wasn't totally clear, but Floyd was also arrested with them, as we know. After Donna, Floyd, and Herman were arrested, a Great Falls, Montana representative of Citizens' 
Casualty Company of New York furnished bail for all three of them because they all pleaded innocent. There were $2,000 for Donna, $6,000 for Floyd, and $5,000 for Herman for a total of $13,000 that this insurance company gave out for bail. There were two different bails that this money paid for, so hopefully this makes sense. So half of the amount, the amounts I just mentioned, so $2,000, $6,000, and $5,000, half of those amounts paid for the scheduled court date on April 20th, and the other half paid for a scheduled court date on April 22nd. The one thing I can't figure out is why this firm was dispatched to furnish bail in the first place, but this is an important part of the story. Their court date was set for April 20th, 1959. Then on August 2nd, 1958, the Daily Chronicle, the newspaper from Centralia, Washington, reported that Herman Jones had been found dead in his car in Grays Harbor County, Washington. Newspapers had been plastered to the windshield and side windows of the car, and his body was found on an air mattress. So it is possible that he had been sleeping in his car, but as a result of the fact that his windows were covered and I think it was just sitting in a lone parking lot, uh, his body was not found for two days after his death. Coroner reported that the cause of the death appeared to be a narcotics overdose, so it is unclear if it was accidental or purposeful. Super sad. Yeah, no matter how it happened, it's just Floyd and Donna now facing charges. On April 20th, 1959, the day of the Petersons' first court date came and neither one of them showed up. So now, their $1,000 and $2,500 bonds are forfeited. And as we know, they have another court case coming up that the other half of the bond pays for. So April 29th, 1959, the day of their second court date comes, and again, neither one of them show up, and so the rest of their bonds were forfeited. Eventually, Cannon County would sue the Citizens Casual Company of New York for the forfeited bonds, winning a $12,000 judgment against the company. According to the statesman, quote, the money is to go to the Cannon County schools, end quote. Neither one of them showed up to their court dates because it turns out they were serving a six-month term in the Multnomah County Jail in Portland, Oregon, and was scheduled to serve a four-year sentence at the Oregon State Penitentiary for possession of narcotics. Here's kind of what happens, how they end up in Portland. Jones ends up, unfortunately, dead in his car. So after they had been released on bail, the three of them make their way to Great Falls, Montana. And I don't know if that's to talk to the people about bail. No matter what happens, they end up in Great Falls. From that point, they split up again. It seems that the Petersons go to Portland and Jones goes his own way. While in Portland, of course, the couple are arrested for possession of narcotics and were being held in jail. So that's how they end up there. They then are to be extradited for this crime in Idaho. For some reason, Donna May was extradited to Idaho for the burglary charge, but Floyd wasn't. So she appeared back in court on November 6, 1959, and changed her plea of innocent to guilty of first-degree burglary. So she was originally charged with possession of narcotics as well, but I wonder if that was dropped or if it was Floyd who really had been charged with it more because she was only sentenced for burglary. The sentencing judge said, quote, this woman admitted in court that she is a narcotics user. She claimed, however, that she was not hooked. It is believed that Donna Mae Peterson is or has been an addict to narcotic drugs. Therefore, it is recommended that she be incarcerated for as long as a period as she can be. And so she was sentenced to three years at the Idaho State Penitentiary for burglary, and she entered on November 6th, 1959. So here is her intake form. Donna Mae Peterson, nay Sand. Berg, Idaho State Penitentiary number 10351, sex female race white, age 26, nationality American, birthplace Salt Lake City, eyes brown, hair dark brown, height 62 and 3 fourths, so she is about 5'2 if my math serves correctly, weight 117 pounds, complexion medium, build small, deformities none, she is not vaccinated, does not have any tattoos, rarely drinks, does smoke, does not gamble, under drugs that says has used morphine but was never an addict, that's what she claims. She belonged to the Catholic Church, as we know she quit high school in 10th grade at Central Senior High School in Ogden, occupation housewife, Idaho residence, three months. Her bertillion is pretty normal. She has some scars on her face, a few on her arms, one on her knee, but that's really it. She was one of 15 women in the women's ward when she entered, and this includes several women that we've covered. In fact, she saw one term of some of our serial offenders, so she served a term with Edna Mae Hester, who was in for her second time. She was in for Virginia Pugmire's first and second 
terms, and she was also in for the only term of Elderly Lennon, who I covered last season. In April 1960, the warden of the Oregon State Penitentiary wrote Warden Clapp, saying that Floyd in Oregon was asking to correspond with Donna, but Warden Clapp wrote back and said under prison rules, this was not allowed. Once she was in the institution, it seems that Donna worked really hard to better herself. She did the usual tasks around the women's ward, cleaning, cooking, sewing, etc., but she also started and completed a two-year course in bookkeeping. Quote, she has about five chapters remaining of a total of about 38 chapters in the course. She is reportedly a good student. Other women have started courses at prison on a more or less self-study basis, but have dropped the courses after a relatively short time with the complaint that the conditions in the women's ward was not conducive to study, too noisy, too many distractions, etc. Donna, however, has not made any complaints, has applied herself to her studies, end quote. In August 1960, just eight months after entering, Donna came up for parole. Reports from both her vocational supervisor and the chaplain recommended that she be released. Her parents agreed to take her back in their home in Ogden, Utah, meaning she would be supervised by the Utah authorities, which had to agree to accept her parole. The Utah authorities did this, and Donna was granted parole on October 1st, 1960, so she served 10 months and 22 days of a three-year sentence. A case report from the Utah Department of Probation and Parole from April 1961 reveals that at some point she moved from her parents' home to a boarding house in Ogden. She worked as a waitress in a local cafe, which she had some serving experience prior to incarceration, but by early April she had been laid off. We also learned that her vice had changed from narcotics to alcohol, and the agent recommended either, quote, that she be returned to the Idaho State Prison or that she be terminated from supervision, end quote. Which I find really interesting that her agent was like, either we get her back in the penitentiary to, like, dry her off, or we just let her go and, like, let her do her own thing. That seems unusual to me. Two extremes. Yeah. After this report, however, Donna realized that she did need to turn her life around, so she moved to Salt Lake City in June and took up residence in the House of Hope. And the House of Hope actually still exists. It's, quote, a nonprofit organization providing treatment of women and mothers with substance abuse disorders and their children throughout Utah since 1953. So it is a really worthy cause. If that's something that is important to you, please check out House of Hope UT. She also entered the Alcoholic Rehabilitation Clinic at the General Hospital in Salt Lake City, and she also got a part-time job doing office work at, a, at the Mercantile and Professional Bureau in Salt Lake City. This was a collection agency. So overall, she really is determined to turn her life around on her own terms. So in January 1962, her parole agent wrote Saul H. Clark, who is the administrator of the Interstate Probation and Parole Compact, saying, quote, Your above-named parolee has done exceptionally well under supervision since since she came to Salt Lake City. She's not being trained as a tracer at the Mercantile and Professional Bureau. The job will probably be a full-time job in the near future. It is the opinion of the people who have worked with Mrs. Peterson that everything possible has been done to help her. She has responded very well. She is now able to face her problems and solve them in a mature way. Mrs. Peterson intends to continue living at the House of Hope and take an active part in the AA program. We have had no problem with the subject since she moved to Salt Lake. It is felt that it was her family that was the disturbing factor when she was residing in Ogden. Termination of Mrs. Peterson's parole at this time would do a great deal to bolster her confidence in herself as it would indicate that we are confident that she's able to maintain her independent status in society without our support. We are therefore recommending that Mrs. Peterson's parole be terminated. End quote. And so after this glowing report, she was indeed granted a final discharge from parole on January 26th, 1962. And I couldn't really find much else about her after her release. Uh, when her mother passed away in 1971, Donna's name is listed as Mrs. Eugene Becker, living in Mesa, Arizona. I don't really know who Eugene Becker is. I couldn't find any records that connected Eugene and Donna. I did find a record of a Eugene Becker whose social security card was issued from Idaho and who died in Mesa, Arizona in 1980. So these details do match what we know of Donna's potential marriage to Eugene. But with that said, when her father died in 1979, she is still listed as Donna Becker, but now she's living in Salt Lake City rather than Mesa, Arizona. So I don't know if she was still with Eugene at that point, if she still just used his name. And then next I find of her is her death on July 8th, 1981. She died in San Bernardino, California. Don't know why she was in California or if she was still married or any other details, but she was just 48 years old at the time of her death, so it does not seem to be natural death, unfortunately. But that is the story of number 10351, Donna Mae Peterson. Well, it's a little bittersweet, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Which is often what we get in these stories. 
there was that real moment of hope, though, when things started getting better, when she started addressing her addictions, when she started reaching out for help. Yeah, for sure. Not an overly thrilling story, but, you know, an important story of, I think, redemption and an example of someone who understood that her life wasn't going to change until she wanted it to. I think that's an important lesson for all of us, obviously, prison or no, uh, that that a lot of it depends on us and our attitude. So I think we can learn a lot from Donna May in her unfortunately short life, and I hope that her brief, her, her 20 years after her, her incarceration served her well, and it sounds like they did. what I've got today. Again, we have Samuel here, where normally he steps in for Anthony, but we have a little change of pace today, and I think, Charlie, we are hearing from you today. Let's hear it. Yeah, so today I'm talking about a philanthropist, pioneer physician, prison physician, and individual who seemed to pretty much interact with every major player in early Boise history, Dr. George Collister. My sources are The Usual Suspects, Newspapers.com, Ancestry, Chronicling America, Warden's Reports, the Idaho State Archives, Collister Neighborhood Association, the National Institute of Health article titled The Changing Public Image of Smoking in the United States, 1964-2014, to and articles titled A History of the Public Health System and Medical and Surgical Care During the American Civil War, 1861-1865, to um, from the National Library of Medicine, and then the Harvard Countway Library and the Medical Heritage Library State Medical Association Journals, as well as an article from the Centers for Disease Control on Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. So due to the nature of his profession as a physician, I would just like to mention that I will be talking about some medical procedures throughout this episode, such as amputation, parasite removal, and there will be a brief mention of suicide. Parasites are in. I'm out. So talk to you guys later. Okay, well, (laughs) it's not too graphic, but still, it will be talked about. Okay. To begin, I would like to read a part of his obituary from the Idaho Statesman on October 20th, 1935. Quote, The name of Dr. George Collister, who died Friday, would flit through many pages of any thorough history written of Boise covering the period between 1881 and 1935. And if the historian had an appreciation of the influence which one man's humanity can exert upon a community, there would be at least one full chapter devoted to him, stressing not so much on his tangible accomplishments, but dealing with his acts of charity and friendliness, his rich wit and humor, his broad outlook on life, his unselfish devotion to his profession. Born in Willoughby, Ohio on October 16, 1856, George Collister became the youngest child of eight, born to Thomas and Fanny Collister. His oldest sibling, Francis, was 21 years older than him. The following siblings are Charles, Oscar, John, Julia, Frederick, Willis, and then George. So he's got five older brothers and two older sisters. Willoughby is outside of Cleveland on the shores of Lake Erie, and when I kind of looked it up on Google Maps, it looks like a similar distance between like here in Boise to Nampa. His father served in government as a railway mail serviceman. Allegedly, his father was appointed to the railway mail service by President Lincoln himself. His father also held the position of treasurer for Lake County. Perhaps seeing his father dedicated to civic duties instilled some values into young George that led him to being the influential and philanthropic individual he becomes. After graduating high school in 1876, he went on to study for a couple of years at Ohio State University before being accepted into Huron Medical College, which later changed to Homeopathic Medical College, which also may be known as Cleveland University of Medicine and Surgery. I looked really hard to see if I could find record of the school itself and couldn't really find anything. So I kind of am assuming or wondering if it like merged into Cleveland University today. Not 100% sure. I was going to ask, like, was it homeopathic at the time? But I guess theoretically, like medicine is still so rudimentary that a lot of it just naturally is, I would think, right? I did see that it was called Heron Medical College, and then the name changed from that to the Homeopathic Medical College. He did, however, graduate with his MD in 1880 and opened his own practice for a short time in Madison, Ohio, before moving out west in 1881 here to Boise. I found some conflicting evidence of which one of his sisters was already here living in Boise. Either way, either Francis or Julia was already out here and sort of encouraged him to move out here as well. 
Upon moving to Boise, Collister purchased many acres of land to begin farming and eventually built his estate. Collister, who was also an accomplished farmer amid the many other commitments he tended to, raised fruit trees, had vegetable patches, and raised cattle. Many of his cattle were prize winners at fairs, often taking multiple places in competition. Medical care in the late 1800s was making leaps and bounds in progress. In the 18th century, the colonial U.S. followed in England's footsteps, adopting what's called poor law. This follows the idea that community members and neighbors take care of each other when a friend or family member is experiencing illness. The first voluntary hospitals were established in Philadelphia in 1752 and New York in 1777. Once it was decided that more formal medical care was needed than what just neighbors taking care of neighbors and family members could handle. Poor laws encapsulated the ideas of government assistance, and early on we see the establishment of, quote, poor farms, also known as poorhouses, workhouses, and almshouses. The conditions of these establishments quickly became unsafe, violent, and unsanitary. In Ada County, the poorhouse conditions were often intentionally bad to force residents seeking their services to, quote, give a poorhouse a go-by in the summertime, end quote. So, essentially, it was intentionally bad so that people wouldn't seek out the services or shelter there, which is awful. Back then, there was a lot of morality tied to Ness being poor. Oh, yeah. Basically, you know, it was you are poor because you are you've done something kind of to deserve it. You are like too morally weak that you can't like lift yourself up out of this. And if you just had a stronger moral character, you'd be rich like the rest of us. And so there's a lot of like tying poor to to morality. And so I, I'm sure that that was a huge part of that. You're totally right. And I'm going to mention that really briefly here too. The first poor farm in Ada County was established in 1883 after John Haley a sheep rancher and stagecoach entrepreneur and future warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary, sold part of his farm to Ada County. The farm was located about five miles out of town. This location is now all neighborhoods, but the closest landmark to where the poor farm was off of Castle Drive is Cynthia Mann Elementary School. The reality of poor farms made the disenfranchised to work, with the thought being their ills and misfortune came from being immoral, and working hard would correct that immorality. This meant many individuals with disabilities, injuries, or who were aging were put to work in unsanitary and unsafe conditions. In the early 1900s, the mantra, cleanliness is next to godliness, became the next fad in public health trends. By 1915, the poor farm evolved completely, moving off the land and the Ada County Nursing Home, a building made of sandstone, was built on Fairview in Curtis. And I'm not sure that it's still there. At the time, Dr. Collister is setting up practice in the territory of Idaho. Medical care in the United States had gone through a bit of a transformation. With the Civil War in the past and coming into the Reconstruction era, more research and better understanding of how diseases were passed on meant a big push for public health. I want to talk briefly about medical care in the Civil War. It is kind of a misconception that doctors and nurses on the battlefields just didn't have a full understanding of what they were doing, given the limited information about medical care and how disease and infection occurred. However, soldiers that died due to combat wounds died mostly from infection because the importance of sterilization of tools had yet to be fully realized, and the sheer number of men coming into infirmaries on the battlefield probably didn't allow for much time to be spent with each individual. The means of getting the wounded off battlefields and into treatment was unorganized, and battlefield tactics were outpaced by the advancement of weaponry. The soldiers who died of disease had many contributing factors, such as environment they grew up in, having poor levels of nutrition and development, and the condition of the camps these men were subjected to live in during the war were simply unsanitary. By the late 1800s, a much better understanding of how keeping the environment around you clean to prevent disease emerged, becoming more commonplace. This is sort of the background context of the direction medical care was taking at the beginning of Dr. Collister's career, and we see in future warden's reports that Dr. Collister usually reports on the condition of cleanliness at the prison and hygiene of prisoners, citing that, quote, the sanitary condition of the prison has been good, end quote. Of course, if you've taken a guided tour of the site, you'll know that there were many times where sanitary conditions of the site were really terrible, even by the standards of the time, and I've got a little article that I'll read about that as well. In 1881, Collister quickly establishes his own practice as a homeopathic doctor and surgeon. His original office was located on the Curtis Block, near where the Old Statesman Building stands across from City Hall on 6th and Main Street. In 1882, there was a worry that a fire had broken out at the Calkins and Norse Warehouse, which was behind his offices. 
where the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman reports on January 12th, quote, On Tuesday morning, a heavy black smoke ascending from back of Calkins and Norse's warehouse, 6th and Main Streets, caused an alarm of fire to be sounded, which was promptly responded to by the department. The origin of the smoke proved to be in the burning out of the chimney of Dr. Collister's office, and owing to the snow on the roofs, was rather beneficial than otherwise, end quote. I chose to include this just because it's such an interesting snapshot of how this false alarm was reported and the worry of fire back then. It's also one of the first articles I could find, including Dr. Collister's name outside of an ad for his services so early in his career here in Boise. Ironically enough, there was a fire later in that year in October that threatened his office, though it seemed like everything that could be saved was, including the building itself. Can you imagine living in a time where a single fire can devastate a whole town like yeah. just raise it to the ground absolutely crazy not to mention with many of these individuals before fire insurance would lose everything shortly after moving to boise collister was named county physician as county physician he oversaw medical care at the ada county poor farm and maintained his own practice treating patients all over boise his first appointment to the position was in 1885 and the following year in 1886 being county physician, Collister was a busy man seeing to many house calls. The first year in 1885, a young woman named Ella Woods contracted a case of spotted fever, also known as black measles or Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Collister does become one of the handful of physicians that contribute research into Rocky Mountain spotted fever by way of his notes on the signs and symptoms and care regarding the disease. Ella Woods, under his care, does make a full recovery from the illness. Rocky Mountain spotted fever is a tick-transmitted illness, and now it is most often reported in Tennessee, North Carolina, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. It is transmitted through the bite of an infected tick, usually resulting in a rash. Other symptoms include fever, muscle aches and pains, and headaches. The disease is fatal if not treated. And this is off the record because I couldn't find anything to really confirm this, but it's interesting nonetheless. So the CDC states that the first case of Rocky Mountain spotted fever was here in Idaho, but in 1897. And Collister's clearly treating it in the like mid 1880s. So Ooh, super interesting. interesting. Whether maybe that's because they didn't know what it was, and so it wasn't officially named yet. Did he advertise it as Rocky Mountain spotted fever? Like, what did he advertise that he was treating it as? Spotted fever. Okay. Interesting. At this time, it was mainly confined to the Rocky Mountain region, which is why it gets the name Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. It's these early diseases are so scary, especially when you know so little about it and, and the Collister is doing the best he can to figure out what it is and how to treat it. Kin to kind of like a Lyme disease that we think of today? No, because Lyme, Lyme disease can be chronic and you can live with it chronically. I'm not an expert on transmitted illnesses by any means, but Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever seems to be a little bit more intense as far as the okay. physical symptoms go. Uh, but Lyme it's like a one and done. Yeah, Lyme disease can still cause fatalities, don't get me wrong. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, though, wouldn't necessarily be something that is chronic. I see. I have a real death fear of ticks. My best friend listens to this podcast all the time, and she can attest that, like, anytime I go out in the forest, I, like, come home and just am checking, like, every crevice of my body because I hate the, the idea of just, like, a little bug burrowing itself into your body. It's so scary. I, mm, Yeah. Ugh. The numbers for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever are also up more mm. than they've ever been just in this year from what I was looking at as well. Back then, the way that they kind of dealt with it, I'm not 100% sure what they're doing now to deal with the tick population, but back then they would send herds of sheep through areas where they knew ticks were that potentially carried the disease and they would go into the sheep's wool, but ticks couldn't burrow fully through all of the fleece. And so they would just get stuck in the sheep and then they would bring the sheep down from the mountain and shear them and burn that wool. What? Yeah. <laughs> Talk about a That's superpower. Amazing. Yeah, so. Go sheep. Oh. Yep, pretty interesting. So. I just, so, okay, so I just have to get a pet sheep and yeah. walk around with it in the forest. Okay, perfect, done. Yeah, there you go. All right. Another example case Collister tended to in 1886 included removing an 18-foot tapeworm from a patient. Oh, okay. <laughs> so if you are sensitive to learning about this tapeworm removal, fast forward a couple of seconds. 
because the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman reports, quote, Dr. George Collister has been treating Charles Wooldridge for tapeworm and yesterday succeeded in taking from him a worm 18 feet long. Feet long? 18 feet long. Oh. This time, the entire worm, head and all, was secured. Once before, Dr. Collister took several feet of a tapeworm from the same man, but did not then secure the head, end quote. No, 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 no. Yeah. So this man had two enormous tapeworms in him, and one came out complete and one did not? Yeah, well, tapeworms can regenerate regardless of what part of them exists, so it was probably all the same tapeworm. Um, They just continue to grow if they're not fully extracted, so... 18 feet. 18 feet. I... That's horrifying. I can't can't think about it. Yeah. (laughs) And yet it's all I can think about. It's pretty rough. (laughs) Okay. Continue. We gotta go. We gotta go past this. In 1888, the standout incident Collister attended to involved removing a safety pin from the throat of a two-month-old baby girl. Yeah, I don't understand how this works, but the statesman reports, quote, He removed a safety pin from the throat of a daughter of Mrs. Warboy, residing here, a little tot two months old. She had been ailing for some time, but no one knew what the trouble was. It is not known how long the pin has been in the child's throat. She is now doing well, end quote. The pin had to have been closed and Mm. not open, is my guess. It doesn't specify, but this poor baby had a safety pin in her throat that she somehow swallowed, and the mother did not realize that she had swallowed it, but seemed to be just fine, especially after Collister removed it, so that's good. But one of those things where you're just like, okay, okay. The human body, man, I think being a doctor would be so interesting, because you would just be like, okay, well, I don't know how that happened, but you're good now. Yeah, and being a doctor in the Wild West, what an adventure. Um, You'd have to be really tough, and I found a lot of other stories published in the newspaper of cases Collister treated or helped in the treatment of, and they were really rough, so I'm including a couple of them, but not some of the more crazy ones that I read. A lot of broken bones from what you would expect, like getting thrown from a horse or a buggy, but also the news can sometimes sensationalize things, and Mm -hmm. it seemed like only the most shocking or gross cases had the most reports, but also HIPAA was not even close to being a thing back then, so the newspaper kind of had all of the information. Collister holds the title of county physician off and on for several years, overseeing the poor farm, county jail, and, quote, furnishes all medicine and attends to all cases of smallpox, end quote. 1890 is a big year for Idaho. Of course, statehood is granted, and with statehood comes more programs and formal organization. The same year, Collister is appointed as a city councilman for Boise, a position he holds for several terms. The Idaho Territorial Prison is also turned over to the state for operations. Prior to statehood, I am not 100% sure who would have been in charge of overseeing the health of the residents. Perhaps it was Collister, but we are missing a chunk of biennial reports that would answer that for sure. Thanks to newspapers, I know that in 1892, Collister was out here treating cases and being referred to as prison physician officially. Here's another case that he tended to just in the community that is pretty rough. So on August 20th, 1891, the Idaho Daily Statesman reports a case, quote, A painful accident occurred to Mr. Reed, formerly a school teacher in Boise County, but recently employed in a mill being ran by Mr. Annette upon Ruby Gulch. On Tuesday evening, about six o'clock, Mr. Reed's hand was caught in the planer and the thumb and one of the fingers (sighs) cut off. Dr. Collister was immediately summoned, who found it necessary to amputate the lacerated member above the wrist, which operation he performed about two o'clock yesterday morning. Cutting somebody's hand off at two in the morning? Great. Insane. (laughs) Mr. Reed is now in the city and is getting along as well as could be expected after such an operation, end quote. A couple of days later, August 23rd, they follow up on the incident saying, quote, Mr. Reed, the man whose left hand was so severely injured by coming in contact with the planer at the sawmill on Ruby Gulch last Sunday, and which was amputated by Dr. Collister on Wednesday morning, is getting along very well and walks about his room, which is in the city. The doctor has the hand in his office preserved in alcohol, end quote. Talk about a paperweight. (laughs) Why he had his hand preserved and kept in his office, I don't know. That was just something that I found really interesting and wanted to include. (laughs) Because he can. (laughs) 
yeah, there's no rules back then, I guess. In 1893, the Idaho State Medical Association is founded by Dr. C.L. Sweet, gathering Idaho's top physicians to standardize medical care for the state of Idaho. Prior to the founding of the board, medical care in Idaho had no standard of care. Pretty much anyone could say they were a practicing doctor. Around this time, many other states were creating their own medical boards. Dr. Collister was a member of the Idaho Medical Association for a majority of his career. Dr. C.L. Sweet, founder of the association, also provides his services as a physician for the Idaho State Penitentiary, at times collaborating with Dr. Collister. Another member of the Idaho State Medical Association that provides services at the prison and eventually goes on to share a medical office with Dr. Collister is Dr. J.K. Dubois. Um, some of you might recognize that name, but for more about this individual and his involvement with the institution, you can go all the way back and listen to episode two featuring Josie Kensler. I wish I had found some sort of opinion piece or something in the newspapers about how other physicians reacted to what happened, but it's also not surprising that there really wasn't anything. And, you know, we all kind of know how that story went out here, at least. The board met annually at various locations, such as doctor's offices and even conducting a meeting in the bishop's house, which is now located across the street here from us at the old pen, but it was originally located in downtown. It was really cool to find kind of like all of these little connections through Collister to Boise and then back to the site itself. Also in 1893, while Collister uh, is the prison physician, conditions at the site at this point in time are very, very rough. The administration building is in progress of being constructed, the wall is in progress of being constructed, and the building's housing residents include the territorial prison and what we now call the 1890 cell house, what was then called the new cell house. The Idaho Statesman reports, quote, Fever at the prison, an evil that the board is powerless to remedy, lack of sewerage system, a sickening stench emanating from cesspools threatens the health of every convict in the penitentiary. The false economy practiced by the last legislature has made itself apparent in many ways since the adjournment of that body. Dr. Collister, the penitentiary physician, reports a number of cases of malarial fever among the convicts caused from the lack of proper sewage facilities. The doctor says the health of every convict is threatened and the situation is becoming alarming in view of the fact that the coming two months promise to be exceedingly hot ones. Thus, increasing the danger, there is in reality no system of sewage at the prison. So this article was released in June. And then it continues on with a quote from Governor McConnell saying, quote, confined in that prison are 90 unfortunate men paying the penalty for the mistakes they have made in the past. They are obliged to breathe the fetid air emanating from a lot of cesspools confined at night in a cell almost devoid of ventilation. It is needless for me to enlarge on the condition of affairs in that prison, end quote. Wow. Yeah, I know. I read that and just blown away <laughs> that... The governor just said, yeah, if you committed a crime, then that's not my problem. You're living in such filth, basically. It's reflective of the attitudes at the time. And, mm -hmm. and even going back to the whole morality that yeah. people who are unclean are going to be the ones committing crime. People who commit crime should be okay with being unclean. Totally. Yeah. Ugh. The following year in 1894, Dr. C.L. Sweet and Dr. Collister share the roles of prison physician. At this point in time, these two witnessed the completion of the construction of the administration building that all of our guests walk through first thing and the wall surrounding the entire yard. The two buildings inside at this time include the territorial prison and the 1890 cell house. Sharing the role of prison physician was kind of a sore subject for Dr. Collister. January 19th, 1894, the Idaho Daily Statesman reports, quote, a tempest in a teapot. Appointment of prison physician causes a breeze. Letter from Dr. Collister. The appointment of Dr. C.L. Sweet to be physician of the penitentiary to succeed Dr. Collister has caused something of a breeze. Dr. Collister was appointed prison physician by the former state administrator when the new officials made the change in the management of the penitentiary, Dr. Collister was not removed. His services gave such high satisfaction that he was allowed to remain until the present time. A short time ago, however, it was decided to make a change, not on account of any dereliction of the duty on the part of Dr. Collister, but owing to a determination of the prison board to divide the office among the physicians, end quote. The article goes on to say that the governor formally asked Collister to send in his resignation after writing a letter to him listing the reasons why he was being removed, to which Collister replied. And the newspaper reports in the same article, quote, it was learned yesterday that a certain Boise physician, which is Collister, when he ascertained a change was to be 
made, filed an application for the place and with it, charge of a most serious character against another applicant, Dr. C.L. Sweet. The members of the board were dumbfounded realizing the gravity of the charges, but when the accuser assured them he could substantiate every allegation, an investigation was immediately ordered. When the accused was apprised of the charges, he was furious and demanded the fullest investigation. A few days before the date set for the physician to face his accuser, the latter came before Attorney General Parsons, pale and excited. I wish to withdraw those charges, he said with a faltering voice. I was mistaken. It was all a mistake. I was misinformed and I cannot prove the correctness of the charges, end quote. So Collister went as far as to claim some kind of allegations toward Dr. Sweet in order to keep his position at the prison, but I was unable to find what those allegations were. The reasons behind asking for Collister's resignation seemed purely political. Uh, Chairman of the Board of Corrections and Governor W.J. McConnell with the new administration felt it was fair to change who was in position of prison physician. Though McConnell claimed in the published letters that this was so, Collister believed that the reason for the change was due to him not holding the same political beliefs as the new governor and that he didn't have a circle of friends that believed in the governor. As I already mentioned, the two did end up splitting the duty of prison physician that year. In this same year, 1894, St. Alphonsus Hospital is established. Now we recognize the Boise location just off of the freeway. Originally, the hospital was located near 5th Street and Jefferson in downtown. The project was spearheaded by Bishop Glorio of St. John's Cathedral. Sisters of the Holy Cross from St. Teresa's Academy became the first nurses to run the hospital, and county doctors such as Dr. Collister could bring their patients to the hospital treatment and continuous supervision, along with treating many of the patients hospitalized at the facility as well. The original St. Al's building had three stories. The first year of operation was reported by the Idaho statesman saying, quote, there were admitted and treated during the year 107 patients. Of these, 78 were discharged, cured, 11 improved, and 14 died. Four patients remain in the hospital at this writing. 19 patients were treated and taken care of gratuitously, end quote. The Catholic Church and nurses running this hospital really wanted to benefit and provide care to everyone they could, regardless of religious background. St. Alphonsus has been a mainstay of healthcare in Idaho since it was established. Many of the residents who served time at the Idaho State Penitentiary were often sent to St. Al's, especially early on when there was a lack of healthcare facilities at the site. Anything from long-term illness to minor and major surgeries were handled at St. Al's until the proper space became available at the prison. Even when that occurred, there were still times that residents were transported to an outside hospital. In 1972, the new and current location of St. Al's opened. The original St. Al's, Al's building was intended to be converted into offices. The work to update the structure proved to be extremely expensive and delayed by three fires. The last of the fires before the building was formally demolished was a case of arson in 1973. 1897 is a big year for Dr. Collister, specifically in the month of March. March 15th, he gets married to Mary Elizabeth Morden. Mary was previously married to John Godfrey Morden, with whom she shares a son named Thomas. They had moved to Idaho together in the late 1880s, Trouble began to brew in their relationship when John would leave home for days at a time. In 1890, they divorce. The ground for the divorce is abandonment by John. There is a civil lawsuit that takes place between Mary and Dr. Collister, which may be how they met. I'm not sure. The suit was over her needing to pay a debt of $3,500. I'm pretty sure that she was living on property owned by Collister. He had an apartment complex off of North 7th Street near the current Capitol building. To make a potentially long story short, the debt was waived and they were married uh, about six years later in 1897. March 19th in the same year, he is appointed shortline surgeon. The shortline surgeon provided care to all shortline employees. March 25th, he is reappointed prison physician. And keep in mind that through this entire time, he's also running his own practice. He was appointed by Governor Frank Stunenberg to serve a minimum of six years on the board of the Idaho State Medical Association, specifically tasked with reviewing applications of those looking to practice medicine in the state of Idaho, specifically overseeing the subsection of homeopathic medicine this year as well. He carries the role for the following 30 years of prison physicians, sometimes sharing the position with other physicians. In 1897, the buildings at the site include, again, the Territorial Prison, 1890 Cell House, and the Dining Hall is almost complete at this time. According to the Biennial Report of 1897 and 1898, under Warden Charles Van Dorn, Collister was compensated $40 for his position. But if we had to get how much money do you think that is now? I'm going to guess 1500 Sky, do you have a guess? I would guess like 800 Sam is the closest. It was about $1,460. Um, geez Louise, have you been yeah, studying? <laughs> this is the time period I'm always checking money with. I'm going to start doing later ones just to throw you off. 
You are the 40s, 50s master. <laughs> I, I had to get the 1880s to 1890s down. I do want to ask, and I don't know if you have, he was there in July 97, right? Yeah, he would have been. So he would have most likely delivered Josie Kensler's baby because she was pregnant when she came into the penitentiary. Oh, yeah, he might have. I never saw anything in the news about it. Right. And I, at that time as well, they did not have him write a physician's report for the... Hmm biennial report so there was no official word from him that year right. either in our records which is interesting to think about but yeah potentially very very likely in the next biennial report of 1899 to 1900 under warden john haley who we talked about earlier we do learn a little bit more about the treatment of residents at the site quote the health of the prisoners has been generally good we have had four cases of appendicitis and in each case we have taken the patient to st alphonsus hospital where they have been very successfully operated on by dr collister and well cared for by the nurses at the hospital until entirely out of danger when they have been returned to this place in order to avoid getting smallpox at this place we have under the direction of the prison physician kept the place quarantined most of the time since last spring but have never refused admission to persons who had business with any person here dr collister has also vaccinated all guards and prisoners as a further precaution against contagious diseases, end quote. So they say they're under quarantine, but also they're letting people in and out if they have business here, which doesn't sound like quarantine. According to census data in 1900, Collister is living in what I assume is his apartment complex that he owns downtown and has many people living here in addition to himself and his wife, Mary Elizabeth. 24-year-old Thomas, uh, Mary's son from her previous marriage, is living with them and lists his occupation as dentist. Also listed on the 1900 census as living with Dr. Collister is, of course, his wife, his sister, Julia, Edna Collister, which is their one-year-old daughter. Um, they adopted Edna after one of Collister's patients was giving birth and passed during childbirth, and so he took in that child. Ava Harold, servant, Tuta McCarty, servant, William McKinley, lodger, Margaret McKinley, lodger, and John Ennis, lodger. Over the first couple of years as prison physician, Collister treats many individuals. So in 1901, the first execution since becoming the state penitentiary takes place. Ed Rice was the first individual to be executed after all executions were motioned to be completed at the Idaho State Penitentiary rather than the county level. Out of the 10 executions that occurred on prison grounds, he is the sect, the first being Tombiago in 1878. If any listeners are sensitive to topics of suicide, please fast forward about 10 seconds. I will briefly be mentioning suicide. Rice attempted to take his life about 10 months prior to his execution. As he recovers, Dr. Collister watches over him and provides care as needed. I won't go into too much detail to not give away the entire story of a future episode for this season, so everybody listening, stay tuned to learn more about Ed Rice and that. Bob Meeks has his leg amputated in 1903, done most likely by Dr. Collister. After attempting to escape, Meeks is shot in the leg. To learn more details about Bob Meeks, you can tune into the Stool Pigeon Saturday episode between episodes five and six. This particular procedure has sat with me as I've done this research because it isn't abundantly clear if he was transported to St. Al's for this or if it was done at the site. The biennial report does mention that it would save the prison money when sudden surgical operations needed to be performed if there was an adequate space. So perhaps they did transport him. If it was done here at the site, it probably would have been done in a cell block, either the territorial prison or 1890 cell house. I would imagine so, especially because there was yet to be a proper space designated as a hospital. From the get-go, Collister notices that changes need to be made at the prison. Men are needing minor surgeries that could be completed at the institution if, if the correct conditions were available. A lot of the ailments the men are facing could easily be combated with more opportunity for exercise. In the 1903 report, this is the first instance where Collister suggests some form of labor be assigned to all men to give them something to do, saying, quote, it is a facet of which we are all well aware that the most, if not all, the convicts confined in confined in the prison are persons who have been used to an outdoor and more or less active life. The change to the inactive, sedentary life imposed by existing and necessary regulations at the prison can not but subject the individual not only to physical but to mental and moral deterioration. If it were possible to establish some system by which the convicts could be put to some kind of outdoor labor for eight hours a day, I think the result would be a consummation devoutly to be wished, end quote. He does go on to explain that the end goal of punishment in prison shouldn't be to break down the physical, mental, or moral conditions 
populations of individuals serving time, which is very progressive for that point in time. Another one of his suggestions that never gets implemented was to prohibit the number of cigarettes each resident was allowed per day or to prohibit smoking altogether, which also is extremely progressive at that time. So early. That's even before, like, cigarettes were overly popular. Right. Yeah. So this suggestion came about in the 1905-1906 biennial report and again very progressive view to hold this early in the century at this point the adverse consequences of smoking were not taken too seriously or something that the general public would have been aware of it wouldn't be until the 1920s that research on lung cancer becomes imperative as it reached epidemiological levels due to smoking he sees to the care of harry orchard in 1906 who contracted pneumonia shortly after arriving to the prison this is also really interesting to think about for me because collister of course is in one way or another connected to a lot of major players in early Boise and Idaho history, so he would have interacted with Studenberg, especially with his appointments for the Idaho Medical Association, and it makes you kind of wonder what he thought of Harry Orchard. If you've taken a guided tour of the site, you probably recognize the name. Orchard assassinated former Governor Frank Studenberg and spent a very long time here. Kind of looking back into his more personal life from 1905 to 1906, the Boise Commercial Club is established. He is a member of this club that many of Boise's elite citizens participated in, with a preliminary board of members comprised of prominent businessmen of Boise at the time, including Leo J. Falk and C.J. Northrop, the idea was that this would be an open club to welcome guests and visitors to Boise who would maybe want to network or engage in business. To create a welcoming environment, the club is, quote, proposed to have all the general features of a social club, though the main purpose is to bring about cooperation of the business trade of the city in promoting the city's material interests. Comfortable quarters will be provided with reading rooms, lounging rooms, billiard rooms, and other accommodations, end quote. The first official meeting was held in February of 1906 in the YMCA Auditorium. Future meetings were held in the Boise City Bank building, which is that lovely building on the corner of 8th and Main Street here downtown where you can eat at Fork and take, there's that neon sign hanging off of it as well that says 805 Idaho. In 1911, Collister's home is constructed, uh, and this is his big, essentially, mansion that gets built, uh, located where fire station number 9 is now off Sycamore and Taft. Described as palatial, the house was considered one of the, quote, best designed and most complete homes ever built in Boise. End quote. It had a number of rooms, two stories, and a basement. And then rather than trying to explain it in my own words, I'm also going to read how the statesman describes it. Quote, the individuality of this building consists in its large imposing porches and port cashier. So a port cashier is like a drive-through slash garage without garage doors is kind of what you can think of it as. On the main front of the building is a large porch with Corinthian columns extending up through the two stories with a mezzanine balcony for the use of the second floor. On the south front is located a large porch running up through the building, the lower portion being a wide port cochere. About this port cochere will be enclosed a balcony for the use of the second story, which will be used as a sun parlor or solarium in the winter and as a sleeping porch during the summer months. On the north side of the house is a large porch extending up through the two stories being used as a dining porch on the first story and as a sleeping porch on the second. The rear porch is built in like manner, end quote. So every room also has a sleeping porch, which Sky, you probably know this as well, but at this time it was really common for houses to be built with a sleeping porch, especially with tuberculosis being a worry because part of the treatment was thinking, you know, if you're out in the sun and getting fresh air, that is going to help cure you. So just kind of an interesting little tidbit there. Any porch is a sleeping porch if you want it to be. That's so true. (laughs) Around this time as well, Collister donates parcels of land for the building of Collister Elementary School and Collister Church. The most notable change Dr. Collister sees through at the prison is the establishment of a true hospital. Prior to 1912, no hospital building was designated at the prison, even though it had been requested numerous times in years prior. Men would be transported to an outside hospital in town for treatment, like I've said, at St. Al's or elsewhere if their cases were severe enough. There is an elusive area of the site that has been referred to as the temple in Warden's reports. It seems that it was a temporary housing space. Warden E.L. Whitney refers to it as a bunkhouse in the 1907 
27, 1908 report. At this point in time, two and three house are finished and under construction, depending on which building you're looking at at this time. By 1909 and 1910, John Snook has taken position of warden and filled the temple floor with cement, along with other renovations to turn it into a proper hospital building for the institution. So the temple allegedly was located where the hospital building eventually shows up at the end of those false front buildings here. And now is just a cement foundation. The hospital is an area that as time goes on in the prison contains many complicated stories. Residents could train to be nurses and were the ones taking care of each other most of the time in this setting. The hospital also becomes the scene of many future escapes and attacks between residents. One of my favorite things that Collister mentions in the 1911-1912 report is that the food at the prison is substantial. So substantial that, quote, 99% of these prisoners are in better flesh after a few weeks in the prison than they were received, end quote. (laughs) A couple of years after the hospital is established, it is absolutely put to the test and proven to be an inadequate space for what happens between 1918 and 1920, the Spanish flu. The prison goes under a strict quarantine for a month between December 1918 and January 1919. Resident nurses assisted Collister in the treatment of the ill. Seven individuals did end up passing away as a direct result of the Spanish flu. Five of them occurred during December of 1918. The following two occurred in January and March of 1919. All but one of them are buried in the prison cemetery. So during March, you all can come take our cemetery tours and learn a little bit more about these guys. At this time of the women's ward in the 1919-1920 biennial report, Dr. Collister says, quote, under the care of the matron, Mrs. W.L. Cuddy, the health of the females confined has been excellent. The new quarters provided in the women's enclosure are of the best and the culinary equipment and toilet provisions are all first class, end quote. This is, of course, the women's ward brand new, the same cell block you get to visit today. That was completed in 1920. 1925 to 1926 is the last year at the institution for Dr. Collister. After him, physicians F.W. Almond and G.H. Wall become the mainstays for prison physicians. G.H. Wall being the second longest prison physician serving under Warden Lou Clapp. Unfortunately, when you visit the site today, the hospital is no longer standing, burned in an electrical fire in 1971. By that point in time, it was referred to as the Social Services Building, while the main hospital facility was moved in 1969 within Five House. To learn more about the original hospital burning down, you can tune into episode 37, 1971 Riot Boiling Point. So we are kind of coming to the close of Dr. Collister's life. Dr. Collister passed away October 17th, 1935 of a brain hemorrhage at the age of 79. The statesman writes on October 19th, 1935, quote, death claims Dr. Collister, Boise pioneer, dean of medical profession in Capital City succumbs. Children carry flowers to hospital on birthday. Dr. George Collister, beloved dean of the medical profession of Boise, died Friday night at St. Alphonsus Hospital where he had been gravely ill for many weeks. Dr. Collister became ill eight months ago. For a time, he was near death, but his remarkable stamina carried him through a siege of several weeks of critical illness as, and he recovered well enough to return home for a time. There, he was able to be about in a wheelchair until he suffered a relapse and was returned to the hospital. Since that time, he had failed steadily, and when death came Friday night, it was not unexpected. The veteran physician since Wednesday had told his friends and relatives he knew he was dying. Dr. Collister was 79 years old. Amid huge banks of flowers carried to his bedside by the children of Collister School, he observed his birthday Wednesday. It was a sad occasion, for it was the first time in his life that he had not been able to attend the annual birthday party given in his honor by the children who attended the school which was named for him. The beloved doctor was the dean of the medical profession of Boise in point of service. He had practiced medicine continuously 54 years, and during that time he had been away from his duties less than six months. Until he became seriously ill less than a year ago, he had ministered to the needs of the sick without more than a month's vacation at a single time, end quote. The article goes on to talk a little bit more about his early life, and I quoted a piece from his Idaho Statesman October 20th obituary at the beginning, and I wanted to read another part of it, quote, until his last siege, Dr. Collister always had a story to tell. It was always rich in philosophy and wit, and nearly always it was brand new, for in spite of the fact that he was the product of a day that is gone, Dr. Collister never really grew old. Youth burned in him, and only his last fatal illness could quench it. The hand of death has struck often of late at beloved old-timers. Few will be missed more than Dr. Collister." End quote. So, he was extremely loved by the community. His legacy is still very visible today in Boise as well. The Collister neighborhood comes from his namesake, including Collister Road, Collister School, and the Collister Churches. St. Alphonsus is still one of the main hospitals 
hospitals in Boise, of course, and after his passing, his home was converted into a hospital for children with physical disabilities. The home is now gone, and so is the interurban railway station that was near his home, and that's George Collister. I don't think this can really do justice in describing the impact he had for people in Boise, but he seemed to really be loved and appreciated by everyone. What an incredible life. Yeah. We so often talk about people who have impacts, but the mass impact that Collister had, wow. And how many people at the prison he converged with, you know, came into contact with. I mean, some of the biggest names in prison's history, you know, totally. Harry Orchard, even Frank Stunenberg, Josie Kensler, Harry Meeks. Like, these are big, big names that mm-hmm. we still tell the stories of. Very, very cool. Well done, Charlie. Thank you. Yeah, good job, Charlie. Good job, Sky. Both both great stories. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. That was amazing. Sam, thank you as ever for your wonderful commentary. Until next time, do your own time. Do your own number. See you later. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.